there, Green Future Growers. Thanks for joining us today. If you're new to the show, I hope you'll subscribe on iTunes or your favorite Android app. And let's get growing. Hey, Green Future Growers. Did you get your copy of the Organic Gardener podcast, Garden Journal, and Record Keeper? One of the things that I've learned to be most beneficial for my guests that will save you time and energy is to keep detailed records of your garden journey. So I think I finally found the secret and made a garden journal data keeper that starts any day of the year because uh, you just fill it in. It's blank. There's no calendar. So you just it's got the days of the week. You can record temperature, freeze dates, frost dates, um, when you planted, what variety you got all in one place. So get your copy of the Organic Gardener podcast, Garden Journal, and Data Keeper today. Welcome to the Organic Gardener podcast today. I am so excited because I have somebody who's in the Facebook group and somebody who's a listener, I think, and just um, she has so much going on. And just from the other side of the world, it's so amazing that we're talking, we were saying on Skype. And so here to share her journey with us is Jane Toy. So welcome to the show, Jane. Hi. Hi, Jackie. Hi, everybody. Hi. This is very, very, very cool. It's so cool. Well, tell us about yourself and tell listeners where you're located and about oh, your okay. little place you've got there. Okay. So um, I'm in a place called, well, I'm in New Zealand for a start, um, in the North Island. Um, and we are in a place called Wanganui, which is um, on the west coast of the North Island. It's about halfway down and um pretty pretty good climate it's um we can pretty much grow anything here actually um and we're about 20 minutes out of the town there's about 40,000 people in Wanganui um so we're a yeah an average sized town in New Zealand I guess and we've got two hectares uh, so five acres um out here and four and a half acres of that is pasture land and we've got a half acre around the garden, which is pretty much all all food. A few ornamentals and a few roses and things, but, yeah, mainly food. Um, we moved here in May 2017. So been here, you know, just over a year and a half and have made huge, huge strides. Um, yeah, doing things slowly isn't really my style. I just sort of like jump in <laughs> gumboots and all. And, um, yeah, we made the, the decision to change our lifestyle dramatically um, on the back of the U.S. elections, actually, in 2016. we A lot of people um, in America might be really surprised to know that um, New Zealanders followed that election really closely. And, I mean, apart from us personally being really, really horrified, um, <laughs> we decided that, you know, there's just – you know, individuals just have to take a move to to really counteract some of the nonsense that's going on in the world. So we decided that we would move and make this place for ourselves and for our family and our friends. And yeah, it was a big, big, big jump into a very big pool. But yeah, we did it. And yeah, we wouldn't look back. Burn the bridges, huh? Well, this oh, yes. is so fascinating, and you know I'm very interested in politics, but we got to back up a little. So 
you know, you know, I always ask about your very first gardening experience. And since you said you moved, like, so what was, you know, who were you with or how old were you? Like, where, where did you grow up? Like, what was your very first gardening memory? Well, we've had, I've had lots of, I've lived lots of different places. And, but my very first gardening memory was when I was about six, um, my parents moved from the lower part of the North Island up to um, a new subdivision in Wanganui and they built a house there um, that was back in the early 70s and um, Wanganui is really coastal so there's a lot of uh, um, like land that's built on sand dunes oh. and basically the property they moved into was sand and in Wanganui we have black iron sand we don't have white sand or anything we have this really intensely black iron sand and um basically nothing grows in iron sand apart from cooch grass which is just this really gnarly horrible spreading weedy tough grass um and like june grasses and what else boxthorn pretty much nothing else grows in, mm. in that sand but you're so, making things grow well, <laughs> well, my mother, bless her, tried to put in a garden and um, and didn't really know about putting in an extra organic matter, obviously, because my memory was that this garden was just, she'd try and plant things and they wouldn't grow and she'd try and water things and you'd watch the, the hose go and I can just remember watching the water just disappear off the surface into the sand, you know, it drained away so fast. And um, really hot summers, watching her out there trying to water the garden and um, just really having no success at all. And then when I was 12, um, mum took me on a holiday to see her parents who live in England. And my grandparents were avid gardeners. Mm -hmm. And um, I just remember seeing the difference between, you know, as a child thinking the difference between the garden at home in my grandparents' garden where everything was just blooming and all this food that they were growing, just such a difference. And, and sort of thinking, well, you know, that's really weird. Why why can they grow stuff and mum can't? <laughs> Very judgmental as a child. <laughs> Sounds like she was sure trying. Oh, she was trying, yes, yes. But then, you know. Um, yeah. I put in, you know, I think I think putting a lot of organic matter in that soil would have made a lot of in that sand would have made a lot of difference. But anyway, that was my first sort of memory of gardening. Um, yeah. So then, how did you learn how to garden organically and put those amendments in the soil? Is that what's helped you be successful? Yeah, it is. But I kind of feel like I inherited green fingers. Oh. from my grandparents <laughs> because they were just the most brilliant gardeners, these English grandparents. And I feel like I inherited some sort of um, just knowledge that I just, I don't know, it's just there. Um, and I have been really blessed in houses that I've owned myself. I've always been blessed with this amazing soil. Um I've had how many houses? One, two, three. This is our fourth house in Wanganui, and every single property has had this rich loam, 
and just mm. everything will grow in it. So I've really never needed to apply fertilizers and I've always been into composting. Um, the first house that I ever bought had a great big compost heap already set up. So, and I didn't have any money, so I just used the compost and everything grew beautifully. Didn't seem to have any pests. And um, yeah, didn't didn't have any money to buy fertilizers really and, and sprays and all that. So I just went with what I had and it worked. And then the next property I had was yet again this amazing soil and um, had a big vegetable garden then because by that stage um, I had two little girls. So I was growing food for us for the family and um, yet again no money <laughs> so just making do with the compost and um, yeah that was that was the sort of my the groundwork for my thinking okay I can do this and I just grew it. I didn't really think of it as being organic gardening I just kind of did it without using chemicals and without buying anything additional basically because I didn't have the money to do it so it was kind of out of necessity which was which was good that's um, what I'm thinking it's yeah. actually a bonus because you know one thing we all struggle with I think at least for sure I do is that organic food at the stores is so expensive and so I love this that you're talking about it was actually like a money saving thing yeah yeah it was yeah and um and it like I'm a really active person and I found too when I had little kids that my way of entertaining them wasn't sort of to sit down and play on their level, I guess, which maybe wasn't great, but I used to take them out in the garden. And so they'd be out in the vegetable garden digging, you know. I just yeah. get I got little um like little miniature rakes and fork sets and stuff Aww. and used to just sit them down in the garden, they'd be digging digging up for worms and looking for insects and you know, helping me plant stuff. And yeah, I always just had them out in the garden. So yeah, that was another, another reason to be um, organic. I didn't want them messing with horrible chemicals while they're sitting in the dirt. (laughs) Just, yeah, it's just the organic gardening has just formed organically in my life. (laughs) I love that. It's interesting because uh, the town that I grew up in, my mom was showing me an article in the paper this week, and they're trying to turn all their athletic fields pesticide-free. And I'm so glad to see that because, you know, the kids are playing there and kicking the ball and running around and falling down on the ground. And so I was so glad to see that they're really trying hard to make um, their, you know, part of the town, a place where the kids are really playing pesticide-free. So, yeah, for sure. I think that's so important. That'll be interesting to see how that works for them because, um, you know, they might experience that everything kind of takes a dip for a while before it regenerates and comes up, you know, when, while the soil tries to amend itself, get used to having, you know, no pesticides, no herbicides, no fertilizers. You know, there's always that kind of slump, you know, as the land still goes, ugh, you know, what's happening? There's, um, you know, no none of this horrible input and then it kind of readjusts itself and comes back up again. Yeah. Well, I think what they're doing is they're trying it on some fields and like the ones that get the most use because they're worried that the, you know, the grass isn't going to or the turf, whatever they call it, isn't going to stand up on the fields that get used the most. But so far on the test fields, it's all been going good. So uh, you might be right about that. That might be a good tip for them to just give it a little bit of time. 
Yeah, nature needs that time to just heal. Uh, so I I like torn between like going with the questions and asking about something that grew this well, but I want you to tell us about the llamas and the animals that you have because I just love looking at your Facebook feed and seeing those cute animals and just everything that you've got going on. Like, did you just get two new goats? Is that the deal? Oh, we've got <laughs> no, but two new baby alpacas, which. And they and they are alpacas. If you call them llamas, they will spit at you. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. <laughs> there is a, 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 a quick fact about alpacas and llamas. They are vastly different. Really? <laughs> what's, oh, yes. what's different about them? I thought it was just like their fur, their coating, like the alpaca fur was like, um, you know, like more for using for, you know, making clothes and sweaters and things like that. Is that not the, that's not the case then, huh? The, the alpaca fleece is really, really um, very fine. You know, we have a lot of merino sheep in New Zealand, and um, the alpaca fiber is so much finer than the merino, so it's really um, giving that industry a nudge. So anyway, but they've got this very fine, fine fiber. Um, alpacas have a thicker fiber, but they also have – they do have soft fiber on them, but they have like these great big guard hairs through it, which is a bit like um, the same density and quality as like um, horse hair, you know, horse tail hair and stuff oh, like sure. that. It's uh -huh. thick enough. So that comes through the softer stuff, and it just makes processing the fiber really complicated because you've got to obviously extract all these thick guard hairs, which is, you know, makes it very difficult. But um, the, the, the llamas are bigger physically. Oh. Um, and they are the, the one surefire way you can tell the difference between an alpaca and a llama is that llamas have ears shaped like bananas. Oh. I kid you not. <laughs> Alpacas have very straight up ears that face forward. Alpaca, uh, llamas have ears that kind of bend round like banana shape and they're much longer than alpaca ears. So there you go. Uh, and how many alpaca? and how come, what, like, is there a reason, like, you chose the alpacas over regular llamas, or, like, how did you get into having them? Oh, uh, because we're crazy. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, we have a, um, you know, life lifestyle block people, which is what I think, I think the American equivalent terminology must be homesteaders i think but we call it lifestyle block you know you're on a lifestyle block that's where you live it's like a you know a tiny farm um anyway lifestyle block people in new zealand have a very serious problem with cute factor so if you see something that's cute and you've got a bit of land you've got to have it so we were um me and my husband before we moved just before we moved actually we were um on holiday down in the south island and um, part of what we did on holiday was we went to an alpaca farm tour. And um, we met all these alpacas and we got to touch them and cuddle them and interact with them. And we basically just both fell in love with these alpacas. And when we came back and we bought this land, um, we looked into the animals that we wanted and we thought, okay, because I spin too. So, um oh. For my part of my art practice, I use a lot of fiber. So, um, 
the idea was to get the alpacas and for the shear, I will keep the fleece and process it and spin it um, and sell it and, or, and use it. Um, but that so far hasn't really worked out because I just haven't had the time <laughs> to do the processing and the spinning. So we got the alpacas basically for the fibre. And we have a fibre pool in New Zealand where um, all the alpaca producers, uh, fibre producers, put their wool into the pool and it gets processed and then it goes, gets sold to overseas markets and we get a payout basically. So, mm. yeah, so it's like a giant, I don't know what you call it, a giant co op maybe? Yeah. Um, where everybody puts their fibre in and they get the money out and that's that. So, all the, the main market for it um, is China. Um, and some parts of um, Europe for the very, very fine quality fiber. Um, so that's why we got the alpacas, and they're just most gorgeous animals. They're just so gentle, and they're very introverted. They like to be around you, but they don't like to be touched. Oh. So, um, yeah, they'll be they're very curious, so they'll come up to you in the paddock, but if you go to touch them, they'll like leap away. Oh. Even um, after they get to know you for a long time, they still are yeah, skitterish. They don't like touching each other. Oh. <laughs> you know? They don't. Yeah, they, they've got a very big personal space. You know, like something like three meters. I think the breeders have told us their personal space is you know like three meters. Wow! If you go inside that personal space, or another alpaca does, they get a bit, you know, a bit miserable, but but upset. Um, so I've always got to remember that when I'm handling them, that even though they look, oh, you know, so cuddly, oh, especially the babies. Oh my God. You just want to, just want to cuddle them and squeeze them because they're so cute. And I've got to remember, no, no, I've just got to give them their space. <laughs> anyway, so those are the real packets. And how um, many do you have? I mean, in your pictures, it looks like you have like a dozen of them. Like, how many do you have? At the moment, we have thirteen. We had, um, we did have twelve males. Sorry, no, twelve adults. I mean, six males and six females. So, three of our females last year we sent off to the breeder, um, and because we wanted the babies, and we don't have an entire male here they're just too much hard work and they're too hard to keep in the paddock they just want to jump out and get with the girls all the time oh. um so we sent them off to the breeder um so they come back confirmed pregnancies and we had three females that were pregnant wow three out of three yeah but um we've only just had the babies well, they've only just had the babies. Um, they one had hers on the very early in November. That didn't go smoothly. That um, she was in labour for a very long time, and the vet had to come out and help her. Um, then the second one that was a complete disaster. She appeared to not go into labour. She was two weeks overdue, and she wasn't showing any signs of being in labour whatsoever. And um, then one morning I went out to check on them all and she was looking, she was down on the ground looking really miserable. And um, she let me go right up to her, which was very unusual for her personally. 
Um, anyway, as soon as I saw what was going on, I thought, right, there's something wrong with the alpaca. So I rang the vet. I came out straight away. And um, she appeared to be maybe in labor, according to the vet. So vet went away, came back again in the afternoon. There was no progress whatsoever. And long story short, what had happened is that she actually ended up with a twisted uterus so that the career, it was terrible. The career couldn't be born. So we had to rush her into the vet clinic and they gave her a cesarean. Um, and unfortunately the career was stillborn and we lost her the next morning. She died as well. So it was really, really heartbreaking. Um, so we lost both of them sadly. And then about, you know, and I, I'd only just sort of got over the trauma of all that when our last one who was pregnant went into labor two weeks early and she, I'd been into town all day, got home really late in the day and here she was wandering around with this poor, poor career, half in, half out, and it got stuck. So I thought, well, I am. I don't have time. I'm not losing another alpaca, and I, I don't have time to ring the vet because by the time the vet had got out here, it would have just been too late. So I just rushed out, harnessed her up, put her on the – tied up to the fence, and just delivered it myself. And it was oh like – gosh. It was, it was, a, it was a, Exciting, but boy, it was intense. And um, I had to sort of maneuver the shoulders because the shoulders had got caught. I had to sort of maneuver the shoulders around and then pull it out. It was and it was great. It was very exciting, and it survived and it's really healthy. So, wow! Yeah, it was so intense. <laughs> that sounds intense. Maybe you're going to end up being a large animal vet one of these days. I think. Not. <laughs> maybe maybe a large animal midwife. Now that would suit me. Uh, sure. Uh so uh I did talk to a friend of ours who has llamas here once and he talked a lot about using the manure in his garden. Do you do you do that? Oh, yes. Wow. The manure is just astounding. Anything will grow in that stuff. It's like I mean I my friends think I'm insane, but I call it Peruvian black gold because they, you know, they hail from Peru originally. Mm-hmm. So I use Peruvian black gold on everything. And the good thing about alpaca manure is that you can just use it straight on your garden. You don't have to rot it down like you would do cow's manure or horse or sheep. Um, they are semi-ruminants. So like unlike, a, um, unlike full ruminants, that have four stomach, you know, four parts to the stomach process. Alpacas only have three. And something to do with that fact means that they extract a lot of um, goodness out of their food. And what's what's left in manure is pretty much ready to go in the garden. It doesn't – you can put it on without it burning the roots. So basically, I just – get as much of it out of the paddocks as I can and put it around anything like all my fruit trees it's all around the base of my fruit trees all through the vegetable garden just dig it in you know once I've taken out a crop I just put a pack of poo over the top dig it in and away you go it's fantastic awesome. and of course because they're extracting so much out of the um out of what they're eating you don't get any seeds so 
there's no seeds coming out. And so, you know, there's no seeds going into your garden from the pasture. It's just really good. Uh, so, so you talk about these paddocks, like, is there like any kind of like rotation thing you have to follow or that you, I mean, maybe you don't have to follow, but that you follow that's affected or I know like some people have talked about that. So I definitely do. I definitely do use use paddock rotation, even on small scale. Um, and I learned a lot about paddock rotation from, um, Joel Salatin. And Gabe, oh, what's his name? I just read a book, actually. Um, Gabe Brown. Is it Gabe Brown? Yes, Dirt to Soil is yeah. the book. Um, yeah, and I do. I follow a really, very good paddock rotation, which means that I don't have to use wormers on my animals because um, I keep pasture long, take the alpacas through first for a week. Then I follow them up with the sheep and the goats. Um, and then I leave the pastures for a month um, before putting anything else in there. So, I'm, you know, I'm trying really hard to break the worm cycle. There had been, through this property before we moved here, there had been a lot of cows. Um, it had been overgrazed and um, it had been completely and utterly just you know, soil life had been decimated by the use of um, superphosphate fertilizers. Um, so there was a lot of parasite burden in the pasture and I, yeah, just trying to remedy that problem really. And I'm doing really well with it. It's coming right. But but the paddock rotation that I'm using by leaving the, the pasture paddock, you know, the paddocks empty for as long as I can, um, that's working really well. So how many paddocks do you have all together? Um, one, two, three, four, eight. Eight, yeah. We've got a big gully paddock, which is, um, which is we've actually just had it fenced and split into two. And that is really good for the goats because they can be, they can really express their goatiness in the gully. There's a lot of scrub stuff down there and they can get in there and, you know, chew on leaves and bark and weeds and all sorts of stuff down there. They're doing a really good job of cleaning it out, actually. Um, so that's, that gully paddock is broken into two. On the, on the other side, at the moment, we've only just got um, two wiener heifers. Um, we did have, we've had cows on the property before. Um, just, you know, spring, we get a heck of a lot of grass growth. So it's really good to get some cows in to grow on. Um, so they become part of the rotation mix as well. And they clean up a lot of the, you know, if there are parasites from the sheep and the goats and the alpacas, they will clean those up because they're not affected by the same parasites as the other animals and vice versa. So any cow parasites won't affect the other animals. So. How interesting. Yeah. So so, so some of those paddocks, you know, so I've got eight paddocks, like um, we've got two paddocks at the front of the property which are kind of small, so I've got an adjoining gate, which I just leave open. So when I'm doing my rotation, I just use that as one paddock. Mm. Yeah, so it works. It works really well. And I'm noticing that, um, like, when we first moved in, there was a lot of uh, – we you know, a lot of pasture in New Zealand has got perennial ryegrass, which is just awful. 
because New Zealand's got such a history of beef, beef um, and sheep farming and dairy, um, I think back in the 70s, a lot of the pasture was re-sown in perennial ryegrass because it put the put the, the, the weight on the animals really fast, really, um, and it grows really fast. But the problem with that is, is that it causes um, illness in a lot of animals. Mm. Um, so I'm trying to get rid of as much ryegrass as I can without ripping up my paddocks. So um, I'm trying to, you know, bring the soil health up so that I can grow other other seeds and herbs in the paddock um, just by over-sowing. So, yeah. I feel like I'm jumping around all over the place, but yeah. <laughs> yeah, but I feel like you're sharing so much information and just tons of golden seeds. And it's interesting because I was just on this soil health panel and that Gabe Brown was one of the big speakers on the soil health panel. And so it's interesting that you keep bringing that up. Um, yeah, the soil health is just, look, honestly, the soil health, you know, I've said to people when they say, oh, what are you, you know, what are you doing with your land? Because, you know, there's often this thought of, oh, well, if you've got land, you must be doing something with it. You must be, you know, what are you growing or what are you earning money from blah, blah, blah. And I say, well, initially I'm here to grow soil. Because, you know, after years of the soil being just, you know, tilled, then a single crop stuck on it and then, you know, fertilized. We have these great big fertilizer planes come over and they're just dumping fertilizer on the neighboring paddocks. And I'm just thinking, oh, my God, you know, all these the poor microbes in the soil. Um, so we are trying really hard to amend, in the first instance, to amend the soil using the animals, using their manure, and um, planting a really, well, sowing, over-sowing a really vast array of other, you know, other forage for the animals. We're putting a lot of clover and a lot of plantain. So the clover is nitrogen-fixing in the soil. And I've been really thrilled to see that um, after I oversowed in early spring, we've just got so much clover come up. It's just so fantastic to see. So, yeah. So it must be doing something, right? I was going to say, do you have any secrets for getting your clover to come up? Because I've seen some challenges. I know Mike and I, we bought a bunch of clover seed. And I, I mean, it could have just been like we didn't water it right or we sprinkled, we, you know, sowed it at the wrong time. But it didn't work the way we thought it was going to. Well, all I did was um, took I took the alpacas, sheep, and goats through, got it down as low as I could, paddock by paddock. So as soon as I, you know, they, I, and this was in, you know, really early spring. So got the pasture down as low as possible, and then I just I, I just hand broadcast the seed. I was like literally walking up and down the paddocks with a hand broadcaster broadcasting the seed um so i would have broadcasted it probably quite densely um and then i just left it let nature do its thing and keep my fingers crossed (laughs) 
<laughs> a lot of things I do, I just think, okay, I'm just going to try it, see what happens, keep my fingers crossed. If it doesn't work, it doesn't work. And if it does, it does. <laughs> so, yeah, that seems to work most of the time. Nice. Well, do you want to tell us about something that grew well this year? Like, how big is the vegetable part of your place? Did you tell me? Well, it's, you... yeah, it's, it's half an acre. Um, and out of that, we grow, we're trying to grow all of our own food. And that's working out pretty well, actually. Um, something that grew well this year. Oh, man. We've had so much that grows well. And I'm so blessed with the soil. You know, honestly, I think I attract good soil. So I have a huge list. Broccoli. We, our broccoli was just fantastic. Um, autumn, winter, and spring. Early spring, our broccoli is brilliant. Um, now, what season is it there now? Is it is it the opposite? Summer. It's summer, right? Yeah, it's it's summer, early summer. But it, man, it's hot. <laughs> it's yeah, it's yeah. It is summer, and it's really really hot already. Um, so broccoli and perpetual spinach, silver beet, all those kind of crops they grow. They, they grew really well last year and I've got like so many herbs and they go crazy just they grow like weeds it's fantastic I end up having to um I mean I dry a lot of herbs so I bought a what do you call it dehydrator last year and honestly you know some weeks every day I'd be drying a different herb so it's great, you know, I can use it myself and when, you know, the herbs aren't in season or I can, you know, I'll be giving it away to friends as presents and yeah. Give us some examples because like I was talking to my brother and my brother was like, oh, there's so many different herbs out there because I was, you know, just talking about like basil and oregano, like those or like anything. Yeah, I've got, I've got, I've got, oh gosh, I've got lots of herbs. So I've got the two types of parsley. So I've got Italian flat leaf and the Afro parsley's, oregano. What do you call it? You call it oregano? Yeah. Yeah. Um, marjoram, mint. So I've got um, peppermint, ordinary mint, chocolate mint. And oh, have, you ever, have you ever, just as an aside, have you ever smelt that chocolate mint? It's like you rub it in your hands and you would swear that you've got a handful of, you know, delicious chocolate mint. You know, the chocolate mints that you buy. <laughs> And scoff. It's delicious. Mm, it sounds so oh. good. So mints, um, chives, garlic chives, lemon balm, pineapple sage, common sage, purple sage, mm-hmm. ordinary mm-hmm. common thyme, lemon thyme, rosemary, chamomile. Um, yeah, that's all I can think of. Well, that well, that's a lot. <laughs> I've got every herb that I would need and some that I don't need. <laughs> like I like I love the pineapple sage because it just smells like pineapples. It's beautiful. But really, I don't use it much. I just – and it has this most – you know, because it's the salvia family. It has these beautiful long red flowers when I let it go to seed and it's just gorgeous. So I just have it for its looks and its smell. <laughs> and for the bees. I'll bet the bees and the insects like oh, the butterflies yeah. and stuff. Yeah, yeah, that's really actually that's really important in, in my garden. Um, part of what I've done is planted a lot of plants for the bees. Um, when we when we moved in here, one of the very first jobs I did was put in an orchard and um, and planted wildflowers as in as many spots as I could. 
so that I had you know pollinators coming into the garden, and it's worked really well. So how about something you're excited to try next year? Like what's going to be new next year? Or maybe even this year coming up if it's early summer. Uh, this year. This year I think I've missed the boat a bit. I wanted to put in some currants, like red currants and black currants. Oh. And I think I've missed the boat with that a bit. I think I'm probably left it too late in the season. But as far as something I actually want to try with the garden that isn't planting stuff, is um, I want to get a chipper, sort of a slash mulcher, you know, yeah. that a lot of my garden waste I can actually put through the mulcher before I put it on the compost heap. I've got like um, a really large area that I use for composting and I have different t- different sort of time scales for the composting. So one area is a lot of bigger stuff, which is on a really slow compost kind of scale. Sure. Mm-hmm. So the stuff I put in there to start off with when we first moved, like I, I was giving that sort of a, a two-year time frame to rot down. Um, and it's, yeah, it's getting there. And But then I've got two bigger, like bins, not, not bins. I made them out of um, wooden pallets, you know, old wooden, do you have pallets there? Yeah. About? yeah. Um, I made these like meter square areas out of pallets and those are my slow my fast compost areas and then I've got um, other compost areas that I use for rotting manure and stuff you know like sheep manure and the chicken manure and stuff so what I want to get is a chipper so that a lot of my garden waste I can actually put through the chipper and put straight into the fast compost rather than the slow compost Um, because I'm finding that I'm just starting to get to the point where I'm not able to keep up with my own compost needs. And I don't really want to – I mean, if I buy stuff in, it's going to have to be organic, which is, of course, more expensive. Yeah, so I want to make – Yeah, we got a chipper a couple of years ago for that same reason because Mike wanted to be able to not just chip the wood because he had been clearing the forest for the mini farm, but also – because like sunflower stalks and corn stalks and we have the same thing we have a couple of bins that just that stuff just sits and sits and you know it seems like it doesn't decompose because it's just too big and pulpy and we would and yeah we have the same problem we never have enough dirt (laughs) yeah those those stalks those um you know like you say corn stalks and sunflower stalks they're just so robust they just don't break down So um, the other thing I had a lot of last year was um, yakon, and the stalks on that, man, they took – well, I don't think they've broken down yet. I think they're still kind of sitting there. Yeah. So that's what I want to try. I want to try try the chipper. So I'm hoping – I'm hoping that Santa's going to buy me one. <laughs> I've told – I've spoken to Santa. <laughs> well, it sounds like you're on the nice list for sure, especially after helping that poor alpaca have her baby. Yeah, better be. I better be on the good list. (laughs) (laughs) How about how about something that didn't work so well or didn't turn out the way you thought it was gonna? Oh, my garlic! Oh, my first season of garlic when we first moved in here was just amazing. It was oh, I couldn't believe it, and it it pretty much did us for a whole year. Um, I ran out, so I harvested it just before Christmas last year and I only just ran out in November and I'd given a lot of it away so yeah um but this year I harvested my garlic 
and I, when I when I really had a close look at it, it was covered in rust and it had got garlic rust. Mm-hmm. And I hadn't really, because you know, it was sort of in a part of the garden where I just uh, you know put the garlic in the way it goes, leave it to do its thing for six months. Mm-hmm. And when I pulled them up, they were so tiny little stunted blooming garlic bulbs, and um, it had this rust all up the leaves. So yeah, that was a lesson. And we had a pretty wet, we've had a pretty wet sort of winter and in, in spring. So. I guess that's why, because it's a fungus. And, oh, so yeah. it got too wet and too too much yeah. rain or something. Yeah. So, um, you know, I'm still going to use it because apparently you can still use it after it's had rust. It's just that the the cloves are so tiny. But so that's a lesson to put it somewhere next year where even if we have another wet season, it's going to get uh, a lot of airflow through it. Oh. Because that is obviously important to have the airflow going through it. Hmm. How do you yeah. get like airflow like on top, like for the leaves and stuff, yeah. or like in the roots? Yeah. No, because it yeah on the um in the leaves because it attacks the leaves and it sort of works its way down to the plant. Oh. Like it's really ugly if you um Google it, Google garlic rust. Yeah, the leaves are just the leaves are green, but it's just got these ghastly bright orange spots all over it just but then awful. and then it went down into the bulbs or just the bulbs just didn't grow they're just tiny right. bulbs, just didn't grow. bulbs just didn't grow hmm. so yeah so that was i was really disappointed with that and the other now, thing that, and do um, you put it you put it in the same place it was the first year no no i moved it i know i moved it because i i no, i um no because i rotate all my crops in the garden too Right, right. Um, so I'm really kind of quite careful to do that whole, you know, nitrogen fixing, carbon, um, gross feeder kind of cycle through my garden. Um, and so, no, I had moved it. And I'd moved it to somewhere where, on reflection, you know, once I'd sort of thought about it hard enough, when I saw the rust, I thought, oh, yeah, it probably wasn't getting enough through, just breeze, you know, just to dry dry off the leaves. Anyway, I have learned my lesson. Um, and another lesson that I'm trying to learn, but I don't quite know how to learn it, is that I can't grow – there's two things I can't grow here, which bugs me because they're both things I love. Basil, out of all the herbs that I have, my basil just kind of sits there. It gets to a certain point and then it just doesn't flourish. And aubergines, I – just don't seem to have the neck with aubergines. They just those are eggplants, right? Yeah, yeah. They kind of um, they flower, but they kind of limp along. You know, they, they they hang in there, but they limp along, and they just never really come to much, which is a shame. So My I need to do more used research. to have a really hard time with them, and then and I, I mean. And then what seems to have worked for him the best is like, cause he would put like one or two plants in like mixed in with the tomatoes and the um, peppers and throughout the garden. And he found like, if he made like a, you know, a bed that was like just eggplants, he seems to be having better luck that way. Cause we used to, we used to get so frustrated where we'd just get flowers and they'd be so pretty and so purple. And we'd think, Oh, we're going to have the best eggplants and then nothing would come. So I don't know. So you're saying that, that it, you're saying that he's had more success when he when he has spread them around through the garden rather than having a dedicated little area. 
No, the opposite. Like he used to spread them out, and he put like one with the tomato, uh, one or two with the tomatoes, and one or two here, or there, and he didn't. And now he'll like make a whole bed that's just eggplants, and it seems to be working better that way. Uh, well, I, that's actually what I do, and it's not working. So, <laughs> mm. hmm. well, then maybe that's not the solution. Maybe it's just you can't win the ball in the garden. Sometimes you just gotta accept that you can't grow everything. Yeah. And just, I don't know. And then some year, you know, every year it's always different, it seems. so. Yeah, that's right. That is. That is exactly right. Yeah, like the garlic. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yes, things change. And if you, you know, if you, some parts of the garden might have a different, you know, sunlight factor or they might have, you know, you don't, you, often when you move into a new garden, you don't know what has been put into the soil previously. Sure. Um, you or there might be, you know, the weather makes such a difference. I mean, I'm, I'm imagining that aubergines naturally must grow in a very hot climate. So maybe it's just, maybe it's just too hot. Maybe I'm watering them too much. I don't know. I just need to. I actually need to do the research and, and find out. Hmm. Okay. Uh. So I my before we get to like the um, getting to the root of things part. Like, so are you? Like having like a farm, like where you're selling produce and everything and doing things or you're just growing for your family or like, since you said like you guys kind of like changed everything around, I'm just curious that way, I guess. We, well, we've, no, we, we're just growing it for us. Well, I'm just growing it for, for ourselves. We've got a business as well, which my husband runs in town. Um, so basically it's just me doing the gardening and the, and the, you know, working with the animals out here. But we, um, but but that is that's my full time job, is growing food for our family, us and our family. Um, so you know we've got our own chooks for eggs. We raise our own meat, and we grow, and I grow you know as much of our own food as possible. Um, and what we don't use. I give away to like we've got five children um so but well between the two of us we've got five children so and my parents live in Monganui and I've got a sister close by so we give food away I mean that was the whole that was the whole point was to make a space where we could provide for ourselves and our family so that we don't have to rely on, um, yeah, the, the the standard systems out there, you know. So we can we we can become more self. That's how Mike and I met because I got frustrated like that back when um, Desert Storm and and okay. George Bush Senior was in, and I was like. I want to go live off grid and just, um, you know, I just want to get away from the system. Like I was just so surprised yeah. that we still like went forward with all that. And my friends were all like, Oh, you should go plant trees. You should go plant trees. And they, somebody connected me with the crew that Mike was working for. And that's how we met. And we've pretty much been together ever since. So yeah. I know exactly how you feel. And sometimes I really miss those days when we lived off grid and we didn't have a TV and we didn't have dish network and we didn't have an electric bill and we didn't have all those things. I mean, you know, I love Facebook because look, we're sharing here and talking on Facebook, but other days I'm just like, Oh my goodness. Sometimes I miss the simplicity that we had back then. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. And it's a, it's a matter of trying to find a really good balance between, um, that 
connectivity with, with what's going on in the world and um, and not, <laughs> you know, and having that, going back to the really, going back to nature, going back to practices that are really um, nurturing for yourself and your body and, and your family and the community. So, that, yeah, that's that's really what we're doing. We're not, we, we never moved here with an idea to make a profit out of the land. The only thing that we that we are trying to make money out of is the alpaca fiber. Oh, um, we, okay. we raise goats because um, we we eat goat meat. Um, it's really good. It's really it's really lovely meat. Um, we have we raise our own sheep for the same same thing. Um, and we haven't yet got meat chickens, basically because well we don't eat a lot of chicken really. Basically, what we're doing is that we don't buy meat. If we don't raise it, we don't eat it. Uh, what about goat milk? Because everybody keeps telling me, like, goat cheese and goat milk, and I keep hearing things about that. Do you do you milk the goats? Yeah, that's part of our plan for the coming year. Um, we've sort of got yeah, – we're, we're, we're working our way through various forward movements – so that is one of the things. I've got a um, doe who will be of an age to breed. Oh, look, she's she's coming up a year old now. So next season she'll go to the doe. And then we've got another one coming up too who is a little bit younger. So we've I hand-raised them. Aww. So we'll get, we, I wanted to get them to an age where they're of a, of a really good age to breed. And then we will do our own milk. So that's part of that process. And because I hand raise them and they're just so wonderful to handle, um, yeah, we're going to use the goat the goat milk for making our own – well, I'll make my own, our own cheese and we, we'll use that. And then that will be yet another thing ticked off our list of what we don't have to buy. Um, and we've also, as I, as I mentioned, we've also just got another um, two heifers. So one of those we may keep and breed and have a calf and milk her. I don't know yet. We'll just see how that works. Because the, cat, the because the goats will produce a lot less milk and it's um, yeah, really good for the human digestive system, we will probably just stick with milking the goats. Um, so we're, you know, what we, what we started off with is that we want to breed our own animals, like not have to buy stock in so much. And that's working with the goats and it's working with the sheep. Um, so just slowly, you know, season by season, we'll just increase our, our flock. Sure. You know, that's the way we try to do it too. Just yeah. grow a little more every year and yeah. um, add something in. And we've had a tough time with livestock where we are because we just have so many predators. I mean, we are in the middle of the well, woods. And... and the winters must be incredibly harsh where you are too. Yeah. Um, I don't know. Cause it's funny. I, I always like feel like, and maybe it's because Mike was a logger at heart and our, we have tons of firewood, but like when I go to visit my mom in New York, I feel like New York is so cold and I'm always freezing when I'm at her house. And like, I'm like, take me, get me back to Montana. And then, um, so I don't know, maybe, I, I don't know if other people in Montana feel quite as much as I do. Cause I spend almost my whole winter in shorts and a t-shirt in our house. I mean, we have a very small cabin you know so it doesn't take a lot to heat it but then 
I don't know. And then Mike's just really good about getting really hot wood. And, you know, we cook a lot on the wood stove and stuff. So I don't know. Yeah. Um, And I love the snow. I'm a cold weather girl for sure. I don't like the heat. I'm not a beach girl too much. I like to swim in the ocean, but I'm not like a go sit on the beach and suntan type of person. (laughs) So, So, Joy, tell us what's your least favorite activity to do in the garden? Like, is there something you have to force? Before we get to the root of things, we're going to thank our sponsors and affiliate links. Hey, everyone. So I just want to remind you that we created a Patreon page. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N. And just go to patreon.com forward slash organic gardener podcast. And I know that you've learned from this podcast. I know it gives out great value. And so if you want to see it, keep going and share it with other people. I could really use your help just paying the basics. Um, You know, it cost me at least $100 to keep this show up on the internet for hosting and the website. And um, I know I haven't done much to promote this, but please support our Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash organic gardener podcast. That's patreon.com forward slash organic gardener podcast. And now let's get to the root of things yourself to get out there and do. Uh, yeah. Um, I really, I don't like really, really don't like thinning seedlings. I find it really onerous and I also feel like you know or oh, you took the you took the trouble to grow and now I'm ripping you out of the ground so <laughs> I don't like doing that um you know so we've got carrots and radishes and corn and you know you plant you plant your two corn seeds and then you have to rip one out and um you know when you're planting them together you, you plant the, the corn seeds in twos and then the the lesser less strong one you rip out and the carrots and radishes and spring onions and all that, you know, thinning, I just hate it. And the other thing I don't like particularly is like when I'm every day I sort of have my chores I have to do out there and if I forget to harvest for the meal, the evening meal in the morning, often I work like really late in the in the day and then it'll come to about sort of six o'clock and I'll be thinking, oh, I haven't picked anything for the dinner. And I was like, I just can't be bothered going out at that point <laughs> harvesting. <laughs> so I have to do it first thing in the morning, otherwise it's rather a chore. But most things, look, honestly, most things I just really love. I just love being outside. I love I love being outside. I just and I love moving all day. You know, that whole being out in the garden and just being able to move. And you know, it's just fantastic. Well, so then that's my next question. What's your favorite activity? Is that it, just being outside? Oh, I love pruning. Yeah. I just have a thing for pruning and cutting back stuff. Yeah, I love it. It's so, um, like, instant instant gratification. <laughs> you know, something will be looking really overgrown and, you know, leggy and a mess and you prune it back or you cut something back and everything looks really nice again. It's just, I love it. I just love pruning. My mom is the same way and she loves her pruning and she got me some awesome pruning shears this year. So I'm starting to get into that habit too. My thing that I'm trying to figure out is, um, I want to put like a mailbox down in the garden. So the pruning, so they're always down there. Cause she got me this really nice pair. I'm like, there's no way I'm going to let them sit out or anything. And, um, 
but they cut through things like butter. I mean, they're just amazing how sharp they are and how great they work. And they make you want to prune things. But um, for sure, they I need to find, because I don't know how many times, like our garden's kind of like at the bottom of a hill. It's not a very big hill. It's not that big of a deal. But like sometimes if I just see something that I want to clip, I'm not going to go back up to the house to grab the... So I need to find like a mailbox or something to put in my garden to keep them. So they're just always down there and always yeah. handy. And I was going to say, I can totally relate to your thinning situation. Yeah. And I've been thinking a lot because I've been working on this garden course. And I've been, I was just thinking today, I need to put something in there about ways to make thinning easier. Um, like I always saw, I saw this thing once about putting carrot seeds, like on a, um, like a newspaper, like a, a tape kind of like you put them on with like a flower water paste and put it in the garden. I say, I'm going to do it every year and I never do. And I feel the same way about pulling the, you know, pulling the carrots you're growing and Mike kind of lets things grow a little bit and then pulls them out. But for sure, if you don't, if you don't thin, then your crop really doesn't grow and you end up losing everything. But I know exactly how you feel there. Yeah, I try and thin, I try and thin quite early and then so that I can at least get, you know, the next time I have to thin, at least I'm sort of thinning like more baby carrots that you can actually eat. Rather than and then letting the you know letting them rest sort of grow up a bit by bit, but yeah, it just feels like such a a waste. <laughs> yeah, the one good thing we have is um, and I don't know if you find this, but like I feel like at least the chickens really like to eat it. So like, and now we have we're up to six chickens. We only had two chickens last year, so that kind of helps having like I feel like it gives them some fresh stuff to chew on. But well, we keep. Oh, our chickens are really fussy. Okay. I don't know if anybody else has ever ever had fussy chickens, but ours seem to be really fussy. They because we've got a mobile chicken coop and we keep the chickens out in the pasture. Oh, um, move them! I move them every twelve hours. Oh, well, yeah, okay. I'm moving them twice a day. Yeah, so um, spoiled they chickens. Lovely. <laughs> yeah, they are spoiled. They get lovely fresh fresh grass to eat all the time and worms and insects and all the rest of it, you know? So they, well, they eat a very limited range of kitchen scraps, those chickens. They're just too damn fussy for their own good. And yeah, and I don't bother putting stuff like that in there for them because I know they'll just ignore it. (laughs) Yeah. Our chickens don't, they, you know, they have a fairly large pen, but they really like the treats. And I can tell like when they haven't had some in a while, they're out there going. And then, um, Actually, when we got these new ones, um, the person who gave them to us gave us a bunch of food and a bunch of scratch, and they've really been loving that, I guess. So, how about what's the best garden advice you've ever received? Well, <laughs> best garden advice. Okay. The best garden advice I've ever received is start small. And it's great advice, but I've never followed it. <laughs> So, you know, just do one thing at a time. Just put, you know, a couple of crops in, see how it goes. Start small. Nah, that's not how I operate. <laughs> so when um, we moved, within a week, I was out digging up lawns to put in vegetable borders. I was planting trees. I was ripping out stuff that I didn't like, moving things around. <laughs> I was doing everything at once, buying, 
buying alpacas the same day that we got the alpacas. We got some goats, and like this was all within a week of arriving out in the but country. But you'll probably have been waiting and dreaming about it for a while, and just, didn't... just yeah. But I would, I would actually suggest that people do start small. Yeah, <laughs> so that's the best gardening advice. But it's just hard to follow. How about, what's your favorite tool? Like, if you had to move again and could only take one tool with you, what could you not live without? Well, when we moved here, there's a, um, there's a, an abattoir, like a little tiny home kill room and attached to a shed in the paddock. And um, in that, when we, when we got here, there was this old knife, a really, nasty old looking thing and anyway I sort of grabbed that thinking oh I, just, I don't want to see that sitting in there it doesn't look very nice so anyway I discovered that it's the best thing for digging out weeds and edging and I use that thing it's it's become my favorite gardening tool I can't believe it it's just this gnarly old knife and because it's you know so old and horrible looking I'm not I don't feel so precious about it but I can edge with it I can get weeds out of tiny places with it I can you know weed in between a crop you know like I was out there yesterday getting the weeds out in between all the um, corn that's coming up oh so and it's just so handy so but I think um those what are they called those Japanese nose yeah I think that's it's kind of probably serves the same purpose as that and I would not be without this thing, honestly. That and my trowel. I, I seem to always be armed with my knife and my trowel. And both of those are very handy. You know, on top of things like, you know, the wheelbarrow, which I couldn't be without either. But <laughs> there was one thing that I wouldn't leave the place without it would be my knife. <laughs> wow. Uh, that was what I said when my friend Lisa interviewed me. At first, I thought it was my shovel, and then I said my wheelbarrow. Or, I mean, I guess, I don't know. Anyway, uh, how about your favorite recipe that you like to cook from the garden? Well, I love rhubarb, and we have a lot of rhubarb. And just a really simple, um, delicious way of starting the day is I have our rhubarb, and I make up rhubarb and strawberries like because we've got a big strawberry patch at the moment strawberries are going crazy so um rhubarb and strawberry compote and i make it just it's really quick to make and i just use the strawberries the rhubarb and a bit of like depending on how much i've got of the fruit put in some maple syrup with that rather than sugar and a little bit of vanilla and a tiny little bit, like a tablespoon of, um, like depending on, yeah, again, depending on how much you've got, some balsamic vinegar, and just let it reduce down into this beautiful, mm, rich deliciousness. And I put that on my muesli in the mornings, and I also use it for crumbles and things like that. Do you cook it, or you just let it kind of sit and um, marinate? No, no, cook it. Cook it. Yeah, just puree it, basically boil it, boil it down. Do you have sweet rhubarb? Do you like rhubarb? Uh, I'm not the biggest fan of rhubarb, but we have a huge rhubarb plant, and Mike always wants me to make something out of it, and I never do. But this sounds simple and easy, and I love that it's got maple syrup. That's my mom's favorite sweetener. And then 
it's interesting to put the balsamic vinegar in there. Yeah, it just sort of rich. It, it makes it. I don't know how it works, but it makes it rich. And I got that off a, um, out of a recipe book that was using some other fruit compote that put a bit of balsamic vinegar in it. And I thought, oh, I'll give it a go. And it worked. It was good. It was good. I made um, – and the other thing you can do with rhubarb, which is really delicious, which I tried for the first time this year, is making rhubarb jam. Mm. And that I made rhubarb and vanilla, and it was – it's just beautiful. Because, you know, when you're making jam, you have, like, you know, all this great huge sugar content, so you don't have the – you don't have to worry about the sourness issue with the rhubarb if it's a bit sour. But, yeah, that's lovely too, rhubarb jam and rhubarb compote. Hmm. All right, cool. I'm going to try that this spring because, like I said, we have this huge plant and I always feel bad that I never really use it, but I've never Ooh. really found a good recipe. So, And that sounds easy, like my style of cooking. <laughs> yeah, I use it. Like, it's growing so well. And I mean, I use, I make it, I pretty much have it all the time because it seems to grow all year round. Oh, and, no, yeah, ours I, definitely dies out around July, June, end of June, July. But so it's like, your... you know, it's one of the first things that's ready in the early spring. And... Yeah, yeah. How about a favorite internet resource? Where do you like to surf on the web? Well, I mean, YouTube is so universally handy for anything. And I do use that a fair bit. Um, but not so, yeah, I like listen to, I listen to TED Talks too a lot about the environment. I find that really, really useful. But also in New Zealand, we've got a um, website, which, I mean, it's accessible to everybody worldwide. It's called the Lifestyle Block NZ. have got, um, like, a huge resource of articles and forums and so much about about farming, about um, lifestyle block farming, um, about growing organically it's just got so much on there and i mean yeah and you can you can access it from anywhere in the world you don't have to be a new zealander so yeah that's that's my that's my go-to place really and what's it called lifestyle block lifestyle block nz okay um and how about like is there a book or a magazine or a blog or anything that you can recommend um blogs god i'm no not blogs podcasts podcasts i love podcasts i get so much out of them so i mean i listen to yours all the time Aww. which is fantastic Aww. i've got a lot out of that me um, too and- i have to say i have learned a ton so <laughs> well you get to you get to pick all these brains globally it's fantastic lucky you I know. It is. I'm so blessed. And I love my listeners. I love my guests. It's just been so amazing. And I've learned so much. Um, You know, I feel like I've turned my brown thumb. I'm finally starting to really learn how to grow things and having more success. So, Great. So there's there's yours. And then um, there's the Permaculture Podcast. Um, That's Scott Mann. That's an American one. Mm -hmm. Um, And then there's, there's an Australian one called All the Dirt. Like every country seems to have these resources and you can access them so easily. Fantastic. Like this BBC, The Gardener's Corner, that's amazing. I get so much out of that. Of course, like their seasons are opposite to ours, but because, you know, you've got this podcast list, you can just listen to the spring gardener, you know, their spring gardener when it's our spring. So, you know, that's great. 
Yeah. Uh, I mean, I love I mean, podcasting so much. I just, yeah. you know, it's just such a joy to get to hear other people's voices yeah. and stories and different things. So for sure. So as far as in books, honestly, the Dirt to Soil, Gabe Brown's book and Joel Salatin's book, Folks, This Ain't Normal. That was just great. Cool. Uh, how about, well, wow, I guess we're already at my final question. So, Joy, if there's one change you would like to see to create a greener world, what would it be? Like, is there a charity organization you're passionate about or project you'd like to see put into action? Like, what do you feel is the most crucial issue facing our planet in regards to the environment, either locally, nationally, or on a global scale? Well, it's such a huge question. And, um, you know, I mean, I try and keep a sense of humor around what I'm doing. <laughs> well, I mean, I think you have to. But I think that in order to create a greener world, we really, as humans, need to get to grips with the fact that we were born to move. We were born to be an integral part of, well, we are a part of nature. We're not outside of it. We're not we don't own the land we are on. We're stewards of it. And it, and we need to take our responsibility a lot more seriously, I really think. Um, I think there's a fundamental error underpinning so much of what we're doing as a species, and that's that we took ourselves out of nature. And in doing that, we stopped moving our own bodies. We stopped understanding how to feed ourselves. We stopped having a, this dynamic nature um relationship with nature and we and in all of that we stopped allowing nature to have a positive effect on our bodies inside outside our microbiome we interrupted the carbon cycle you know there's so much that because we took ourselves out of nature and stopped moving and interacting every day with nature and growing our own food we've caused so many problems and i honestly think that if individuals and then couples and families would start to understand the multiple benefits of growing their own food, we could start to realize that movement and interaction with nature um, and all that necessitates means that so many major issues would be resolved as part of our daily lives, you know, whether it's our health or our relationships, you know, all these problems. We need to sort of start looking a bit at to what our actual purpose on the planet is, you know, we're not outside of nature. We're, we're an integral, we are nature, you know? Sure. We're a part of it. Um, for sure. And I think that was just one of the most eloquent answers that have come through on my show. I mean, I just really think you, um, you know, you're like my avatar, like, you know, exactly who I'm speaking to. And I think listeners are going to really relate to that and just, you know, I, I don't know, to me, that's the beauty of my show is that um, we all kind of feel like, you know, like our tagline is helping you grow your own organic oasis. It's not just a vegetable garden. You know, we really, you know, believe in creating a whole environment and just caring for it yeah. and being a part of it. And um, for sure, I think there's that's so true. Just so many people used to grow things and now we've gotten so far away from it. And I think, I, I mean, for sure, there's a big farm to school movement, but it could, it could definitely grow. And I think, uh, you know, a lot of what you're saying just ties into that. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's vital. You know, if you have, 
Oh, if you, families, you know, one person, I know that a lot of people can't afford it. I do understand that. But I also observe that there are a lot of people in the world who, who choose not to afford it. They choose to have two vehicles, have flash new clothes all the time. They choose to have expensive gym memberships. When they've got a flipping garden out there, it's just going to waste. You know, they could be out there growing their own food, moving in their gardens, being part of nature, you know, making some choices. We need to start making choices that, um, you know, make us responsible not only for the environment but for our own, our own health. Yeah, I think so for sure. I mean, I definitely don't spend as much time in the garden as Mike does, but I think because I eat all of his healthy food, it helps me be a healthier person. And I think that a lot of what you're saying there, and for sure that people... So I was reading this article in the New York Times the other day about um, things you can do to be a better environmental steward. And like, you know, some of the things they were talking about was, um, you know, take just taking better care of your products so you don't have to buy a new phone or a new computer or a new toaster oven or a new whatever, you know, getting things fixed and, you know, or caring for your car, you know, just taking better care of it. Like they had all these um, ways to be a better, you know, steward of the land, um, kind of in the tech world, I think the article was about. So I, I think there's, you know, a lot of what you're saying is that people do have to make those choices that can afford it if they can. And like, but like you were saying in the beginning that you didn't have money and so you were doing things with compost and things because that's what you had. And I think a lot of people will realize in the long run it will save us money. Yeah. Yeah, it does. It like does. that's what drives uh, me crazy when people are like, we can't have all these green jobs and we can't give up our carbon or whatever. We have to rely on fossil fuels because it's just, you know, economically unaffordable. But to me... I think if we would invest in research, you know, more ideas would come up and we would get more efficient. And I just think the more we put towards green jobs, the more it will grow. Oh, uh, definitely. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. We've got to, we've got to stop. Look, we've got to start as individuals. It's no good. It's no good expecting, you know, it's no good expecting our local governments. It's no good expecting our, our national governments to fix everything for us as human beings. We have responsibility for ourselves. And part of that is is knowing and teaching the you know coming generation how to actually God, we're the only species on earth that can't feed ourselves. You know? It's just insane. We think we're so special, but we can't even feed ourselves. You know, we have to rely on you know, getting in a car and going to a supermarket. It's just ridiculous. That's a great point. And, but I think what you said, and I was going to say this in the beginning when we first started talking, that individuals do make a huge difference. And all those choices that you're making really add up. And I think you're a great example of that and how, you know, each family, each time you make that choice um, and you make a better choice, that you're really making a better planet. Every time you make a decision to to do something to nurture yourself and nature, you are adding to the you're adding to the to the planet. You know, you're you're adding you're adding something. Every time you make a decision to God, even buy a plastic 
an, ob- an object that's got plastic on it or plastic bags with it or whatever, you're making a decision to go against nature and the planet. And it's just how it is. Every little decision builds up. We know we're none of us are separated from anybody else. We're all part of the decision-making process. And Either it we, does we, add up. It's you. Oh. Like when I think about like how long I've been using grocery bags from, you know, like my cloth ones that I've been bringing, how many plastic bags have I saved? And it seems like, you know, it's not that big of a thing. And you think, oh, well, everybody else isn't doing it. So what's my, because that's another thing I hear a lot. Um, well, you know, my little thing isn't going to make a big difference. And until like, you know, everybody does it, it's going to change. But I don't think that's true. I think we all have to. And I think you're a perfect example of that, that you, you know, live that way. Cause it is so hard. Like every time, like now I stand at the stores, like after years of trying, you know, eating healthier and I'm trying to eat more fruit and, you know, choose raspberries instead of a chocolate bar or something. But then I look at the raspberries and I'm like, how many raspberries am I going to get for this stupid plastic container that they come in? And yes. And, and have they, and you know, and have they been sprayed with yeah. God knows what chemical? Have they been grown in soil that was filled with chemical fertilizers? You know, Every every time we make a choice, we just have to start thinking about our choices. Every time we make these choices, like you say, you know, you you buying the raspberries, you're not just getting the raspberries, you're getting the trash as well. How's that going to get treated? You know, there's so many decisions, and we have to we have to make a small step to start making these changes. Well, I think one of the big things is like since China quit taking plastics last January, I've been thinking, and so they don't recycle plastics where I live anymore. That that for me was a huge one. And then when I go to visit my mom and I see how easy it is to just throw that plastic container in her little green bin that some garbage man comes and picks up, mm-hmm. I almost feel like all this recycling has made us complacent and lazy in some ways. And so I've made such a more concerted effort to give up plastic this year. And it's, and it's been hard. It's been challenging. But the more you do it, the more you see, you know, you, it just starts to become a part of you. Yeah. So, Yeah, um, that's right. I, I think recycling became such a catchphrase that it was like, oh, recycling is going to save, save us all. But it, it's not. We, it's that we need to go one step. We need to keep on going that next step. Okay, so recycling was a good starting point, but the reduce and the refuse, you know, re- reduce your, your 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 consumption of this stuff, and then refusing to do it. And you know, if you don't, you can't just go from full on, you know, using all this plastic and from that to nothing. Well, no, could, it's very you hard. To, you need to allow yourself to take this step and then it's not so hard to take the next step and then you take the next step and then before you know it you know you've, you've actually done it you've made a, a giant change that's for sure hmm. well i see that we're like headed almost to an hour and a half now so um <laughs> even though i've tried to keep it moving and going along but i just think you've been sharing golden seeds like crazy and i think listeners are gonna love this and like i said i think you know you're exactly a like my avatar, the kind of listener that I am looking for out there. So I, I know listeners will um, really enjoy it, but do you have just an inspirational tip or quote to help motivate listeners to reach into their dirt and start their own garden? Yeah, I really thought about this actually. Um, and my top tip, seriously, I'm serious about this. 
if we all just slow down a bit. And my top tip is observe, observe, observe. Because nature is the best and most patient teacher. And she doesn't actually mind how many tries you need to have to learn a lesson. She will always give you the next opportunity to observe and deepen your understanding. And um, you know, just by observing what nature does, we will learn how to work alongside her, alongside our gardens, alongside our plants, alongside our animals. Because that, without us, there's perfect balance and there's, you know, there's, there's health, well-being for, for the, our ecosystems, our planet. With us, we're what screws it up. So we need to take a step back and actually be willing to learn and observe and watch and learn from that. And that's my top tip is just observe. Go out and look at a tree. Go out and watch the birds. Go out and, I don't know, observe what your cat does, whatever, because that's where the answers are. And we've got to have a bit more humility. That's my top tip. Well, that was the most eloquent way. I'm just going to leave it there. So thank you so much for sharing with us today, Joy. This was fantastic. Jean, I'm mixing your first name and your last name. Yeah, it's okay. <laughs> what time is it there? It's kind of late here for me. I don't. I usually try to do interviews in the morning, and I just uh, sorry. It's ten fourteen a.m. Oh, okay. on Friday morning. Yeah, Friday morning at ten ten fourteen a.m. So what is it there? Uh, well, I'm in New York today, so it is four fourteen in the afternoon on Thursday. Oh wow! <laughs> I know, right? It's crazy. <laughs> Yeah, well, I'm, I've been flat out in the garden in, in the paddocks for the last week, and I'm actually, this is, I'm taking a day off. Well, kind of taking a day off. <laughs> I'm sorting out Christmas shopping. <laughs> well, good for yeah. you. Well, have a wonderful holiday, and thank you so yeah. much for sharing with us today. I think it's been really cool. Okay. It's been way cool. Hey, Green Future Growers. So, uh, I went back in and changed the Patreon tiers again. So now it is, um, you can donate. My brother was like, you're still asking for just way too much. He's like, it should be a dollar a month or $2 a month. So I changed it. So it's like $12 a year. Um, you can go in for a dollar a month. I, and pretty much, I think you can just, if you just click on any of them, you can donate whatever amount you want. Um, and so it would just be huge if you could help. Um, when he found out how much I was paying for my website and stuff, he was just in shock. So, um, you know, I, I love my podcast and I, I certainly would. I was I have to say I'm surprised we're still going because I'm really struggling at this point. So if there's anything you can do to help keep the show on the air, I know you get value from it because I've learned so much. Um, it would really help. So like my brother said, if just 50 people could donate a dollar a month, that would really, really, really be huge in helping pay for the website. He was like, what? You pay $77 a month just for the website? And then there's a few other charges that, like I said, it comes out to about $100 a month that I've been putting out for going on four years now out of our own pockets. So um, it would just be huge if you could chip in. Hey there, green future growers. Would you like your friends and neighbors to create an organic oasis too? Would you like others in your area to learn about earth-friendly practices for their gardens and yards? 
If so, we would love it if you would share the Organic Gardener podcast with your local community or college radio station today. Thanks again for listening and remember, grow local.